you've never failed me. And because of that, Lord, we can rely on you. We can trust in you. We can cry out to you, Lord. We can wait on you. So, Lord, thank you so much for the songs that we sing. Let us be reminded, Lord, that worship is not when the music ends. So I pray, Lord, right now for my family and friends who have joined me today to hear what you have to say. Lord, we love you for no other reason except that you've loved us. I'm thankful for everyone who is drawn to this place. We realize, oh God, that you have started something here a long time ago and you're not done yet. And because of that, Lord, I pray for every person that has walked in through these doors and will hear this later on. Lord, that you would remind them of your love for them. In the midst of everything that's going on and the situations and circumstances that they find themselves in, let them know that you are sovereign. That you're in control, oh God. I pray for the marriages and the singles and the youth and the children, Father God. I pray for every single person that is in this place right now and needs a desperate touch from above. Lord, let us sense your prompting today. Let us feel your embrace. Let us hear that small, still whisper that says, I love you. I love you. So, Lord, thank you for allowing us to gather in this place. Hide me behind you and bring glory to your name. I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. And we all said, amen Amen and amen. God bless you guys. It's so good to see everybody. Amen. I sense an anticipation in the room because Shelly kind of gave away what we're going to be talking about today. But welcome, welcome, welcome to Recovery House of Worship Brooklyn. If you're here for the first time, we are so glad that you're here. We've been in a series called Real Marriage. This is the sixth week of it. And if you've been around for the last five weeks, um, you're going to realize that marriage is hard work. After the first uh, sermon that Pastor Edwin brought, I realized what a horrible husband I am. Thank you so much, Pastor Edwin. But you have to understand something that we were trying to do with this series, we were trying to do with every series, is that without Christ at the center of your marriage, your life, your singleness, without Christ, trying it on your own is not going to work. It's just not going to happen. So it's going to take work. But listen to me. Lean in for a moment because I want to share something with you really personal. It's worth the work. It really is worth the work. To have someone that will partner with you in life, not only shoulder to shoulder, but face to face, but also someone who will witness your transformation. Someone who will know you when you are all busted up and someone knows you when you're all cleaned up. Someone who knew you when you had a six-pack or when you got a cake. The way it is. But at the end of the day, there is a love that grows because when you put Christ at the center, there's something that sprouts out of it. I think about it like it's a garden. Everybody ever passed like a garden that's immaculate and beautiful? And you're like, oh, look at the beautiful flowers and everything. But you know what? There is a before and after picture of a garden that I want you to see. Wow. It takes work to take that mess and to make it that way. And you know who's the husbandman? You know who's the great gardener? Jesus. 
Jesus. He can take your marriage. It may look like that with weeds and leaves and strewn and soil that needs to be plowed. And he can come in and begin to snip and pull and prod. And look what comes out of it. That is the work of God. Amen? Because it's hard work. We have to allow God to do that work in us and for us and through us. Because I know this, having been part of this series and being part of listening to what is happening, I know that the work at the end is what God wants to do to put our marriages on display. And if you're single in this room or divorced, don't tune me out. Because the reason you're divorced is you should have had this information way back then. And if you're single, you have to understand that you will be married. But you have to be able to work on your singleness so that you can be marriage worthy. All right? Now, there's going to be some hard sayings today, but I believe that hard sayings soften our hearts and make them pliable for the work of God. Soft sayings create hard hearts, and people become rebellious because they're not really listening. And I want you to be really, really attentive today to what God has to say because what happens in marriage is a reflection of our society. And we have to be mindful that at the end of the day, there's a saying by this foremost Christian counselor He's an author also. His name is Dr. Smalley, I believe. And he says something like this. He says, couples don't fall out of love. They fall out of repentance. I'll say that again. Couples don't fall out of love. They fall out of repentance. And what that means is after a while, you plant your flag in areas that don't matter. And you fight over things that don't matter in light of eternity. So our marriage series, what we're trying to do is point you back to the scriptures, point you back to what God has to say about marriage, and beckon you, invite you to die to self, to do away with your selfishness, to realize that when you have a fight, it's because you don't get your way, or because you're running to a particular idol. We're going to get into that in a little while. Nobody want to hear that, but I'm glad you're here. You have to understand that what we want in this place are marriages that bring glory to God. To bring glory to God. And I'm not standing up here having a perfect marriage. But I love my wife. And I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. I, when I said to, to death do us part, I meant that. And now that we're in Christ, hey, I'll meet you in heaven. It's like, no, I don't want to see you no more. I said, yeah, you'll meet me in heaven. Amen. So I wanted to put that out there at the very beginning because it's important for us to understand that. So I've been charged today to kind of talk about a subject that if you have a particular perspective about it, may affect your relationships. And it's sex. And now that I have your attention, now that you stopped being on your phone and you woke up, and you're at the edge of your seat, it's not what you think. But tell me, when I say that word sex, what, what, are you, what comes to mind? Like, what do you think about? Because when two sinners say I do, they bring into a marriage a perspective about sex. And because what you think about is going to affect your relationships, it's going to affect your marriage, it's going to affect how you interact with your children. What, what's going to be your story? 
When your children come to you and say, hey, dad, like, I've been thinking about this, and mom, I've been thinking about this, and you're like, oh, go talk to your mother. <laughs> no, go talk to your father. What story are you going to tell them? Because we're going to see later, statistics are telling us some really horrible stuff that our kids are being exposed to. Unbeknownst to you. Some of us, out of sight, out of mind, we don't want to have a conversation. I was in the library recently, uh, and as I'm passing and picking up a book, yes, I still go to the library and pick up books. And I was passing the, the, the computers where a bunch of kids were playing. I noticed that they were being very secretive. They must have been maybe 10, 12 years old. Most. Girls and boys, just cackling, <laughs> looking over their shoulders. And when I peeped the screen, in the library, they were watching porn. So you're saying, no, we shouldn't have this conversation in church. You know, we shouldn't talk about these things. This is what I came out for. Listen to me. You all have nieces. You all have nephews. You all have children. Your perspective on sex will affect every relationship you have. The way men look at women, the way women look at men, the things we think of, and then the things we try to bring in to our marriages. So having said that, I'm glad you're going to stay. We have a talk. At the end of this talk, I'm hoping that there'll be a bunch of us in here that will repent because of our perspective on marriage. And as we're led to the communion table, that will take that opportunity. This is what I love about communion. This is what I love about Sunday. I get an opportunity after I have heard something to try it again. That's why that song is so profound. Lord, do it again. Do it again. I need you. I got, Sunday is the first day of the week for me. Not Monday. Sunday gets me ready for Monday. So I'm excited about what God has to share with us today. I pray that every single one of us will be attentive, take some notes. You can't ask any questions because I'm just speaking today. But if you, if you show up on Thursdays, we can expound on this. Amen? So let's stand to our feet because the scripture we're going to be talking about today, the text we'll be reading from today's record. Does everybody know why we stand when we read God's word? Okay. It's not calisthenics. You don't need any exercise. We also understand that the mind cannot absorb what, the, what your rear can't take. So I'm glad that we stand up, but we hold God's word above everything in this place. At the end of the day, no matter what goes on, we want to go to God's word and say, what does God say? You don't like me, I don't like you, what does God say? You don't care about this, I'm getting, what does God say? At the end of the day, we want to bring it back to what God says. Amen. So we're reading from Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 to 25, and this is the place that you're going to see the first marriage, the first wedding, and the first account of sexual relationship. And this is all sex before sin. Amen? Amen. So, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call, him, call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord, the Lord God 
caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. He brought her to the man, and Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is like a song he goes into. It's like poetry, right? She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Further on, it talks about how God made everything and realized that everything was, came to the conclusion everything was good. But then when he realized the countenance of Adam, he realized that that is not good, that Adam would be sad that way. God gave him a charge, and he went about doing it, and he named the animals, and of course, when the animals came before him, apparently they showed up in pairs. And after that was done, he got an opportunity, I believe, to witness these animals interact. And if you ever watch animals interact, they are playful, they are grooming, they are, uh, there's laughter, there's a bunch of stuff that goes on. And Adam kind of saw that and didn't look at himself and, and looked at the aardvark or the deer or the elephant or the lion and realized there's no connection here. And I believe that's what made him sad. Not that God was not enough. Because God is sufficient. If you're single in this room, work on being connected to God in a way that allows that to be sufficient and content so that when God brings someone into your life, you're ready to receive that person as a gift from God, not an object. Amen? So Adam gets a chance to see this, and he's sad, and of course it goes on to say in the text that God now puts him to sleep and performs the first surgery that we witnessed and removes a part of him, then now he gives back to him in the form of a woman. And you have to be mindful about something because I said it's the first marriage, the first wedding, the first sexual relationship before sin. Meaning that that first marriage, that first wedding, that first sexual relation was good. It was good. It was before sin. It was good. And in doing so, what God did, he put his stamp on sex with boundaries. First wedding, first marriage, first sexual relation. Everybody following? So we understand that immediately God said it was good, but he placed it with barometers. He said marriage. So we're talking about real marriage. And some of you now are saying, oh, man, he's just blowing my head, this guy. Like, why did I come in here today? Because you have to understand that your perspective is what has affected your relationships to this day. To this day. And what God wants to do, he wants not only open your eyes, but also help you to identify something that you may not be aware of. So when I say sex, what do you think about? Because there are three perspectives that I want to dive in today. And the first one is sex is God. 
Sex is God. People are saying, what are you talking about, sex is God? Well, this is where sex becomes your identity. Your life is so consumed by it, your identity is set by it, it becomes a dominating aspect of your being. You have led and led every relationship you have ever had with it. Everybody hear that? Every relationship you've had, you've had sex. You're like, oh man, why is he blowing my spot today? <laughs> but think about this. In Romans 12.1, won't be on the screen, just stay with me, it's a short text. And I want you to listen more than me looking around, okay? You can write notes down as you go. Romans 12.1 says this, it is written, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. i say that again. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. Worship is what you do with your body. You ever notice as you read the Bible in ancient pagan times in Ephesus and places like that, at the very center of the city, they had a temple. The pagans had this temple. You know what it was for? To offer a sexual sacrifice. They had a bunch of prostitutes in there and people would go in there and offer a sacrifice. Why? Because it was their God. Sex was their God. In fact, they even named their gods that way. Because what you do with your body is not just physical, it is deeply spiritual, and you're offering your body as a sacrifice, either to the glory of God or to worship a false God. Adam, you ever get a a friend who comes to you and says, or as counselors in the church, we get people who says, well, I have a friend who, you know, he's in love with this girl, and I work a lot with men, so I get these stories all the time, and I got to scratch my head sometimes. Sometimes I want to take like a slapper and just slap them as they talk. But he says, well, you know, I got a friend who, man, he met this girl, and he really loves her, uh, and she's a Christian, and, you know, I started coming to church, and, you know, I'm really into her, and, and, um, you know, I, we've been intimate. And, and he says, you know, Pastor, what do you think about that? And I said, um, you're fornicating. And he's like, what do you mean? I love her. I'm a Christian. Mm. And I love her. And, Pastor, come on, we're going to get married. And I'm saying, you're not only fornicating, but you're an idolater. Why? Because you're seeking comfort in someone other than Jesus. It goes further. Don't, 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 don't fall asleep on me yet. Look what it says. It says, and I told him this, right? Because it's, it's, it's reality. I said, man, when you're doing this, you're worshiping a false god. And your problem goes deep in the sex. It goes all the way down to worship. Everybody know what idolatry is, right? Idolatry is the worship of someone or something other than the God of the Bible. So when you run into the arms of your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you're choosing comfort in someone other than Jesus. It's not for the glory of God. And then it says, that means that your bed is a pagan altar. (laughs) 
I'm, I'm, I'm probably won't be allowed to speak anymore after this, right? <laughs> but stay with me, please. And your boyfriend or girlfriend is a pagan priest or priestess. And guess who's the sacrifice? You. Him. Her. This is where we hold sex as God. You've led every relationship with it. This is the perspective you have, and sometimes you come into marriage this way. You come into marriage and you say, this is a God. We're going to talk a little bit later about it being gross. It's probably the next thing we'll talk about, but think about this. You have this perspective who, by the way, listen to me, you've gotten from who? You've gotten these images from who? These ideas from who? Not from the Bible. You've gotten them from the world, which is an enmity to the things of God. And they want nothing to do but to distort and defile those things that are godly. Guys, I'm not standing up here like this holy roller. I had this perspective of sex. I had these images of sex, guys. And they've established tracks in your mind so much so that when you wind up being in a relationship, you think that it's okay to bring that perspective into your marriage. And if you're single in this room and you're having sex outside of marriage, there's a shameless solution for you. And that is to allow Christ to receive the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ and the love of Christ and find your validation and your comfort and your affirmation and your acceptance not in someone else or the act that you perform but in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And I know you're pushing back and you're saying, man, you don't understand. There's so much damage in my life that that's what I need to be comforted. That's how I exhibit power and control. That that's how I stay above things. That's my defense mechanism. You don't understand. That's what I need to do. Because I've been exposed to so much stuff in my life that I don't think that sex is how God views it. I like the way the world has showed it to me. The next one is sex as gross. Sex as gross. Now, this is birthed out of this whole thing that um, the spirit is beautiful and physical is, is, is bad. In ancient Middle Ages times as well, you know, if, if you got caught doing something, they put a letter on you and walked you around with a, with, you know, with, with a symbol, that person is a bad person. And the church sometimes has taken that position. We're saying, oh, sex is bad. No, it's not. Sex is good within the parameters that God has placed, which is what? Marriage. Marriage. Keep, if you leave here with anything else, marriage. Marriage. It is good. It is good. Listen, my, 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 I don't got to tell you how good it is, but we'll talk about it later. But, but think about this. That there are things that you probably were told, and I know in my household, I grew up in the 60s in a Spanish home, my mom was not a devout Catholic, but she was a Catholic. Big Bible, cross on the wall, uh, rosary hanging from it, blue eye, blonde hair, white Jesus staring at you. Every time we left the house, she purposely placed it in a position that when you left the house, you had to look at Jesus' eyes. Just had to. And I remember her telling my sisters, she didn't, I don't know why she didn't tell the boys. I think the boys were already exposed to things. Um, but she would tell my sisters, if you let a boy kiss you, you're going to come out pregnant. 
why in the world would you ever tell them that? Because they never were able or prepared or capable because no one taught them to have this talk about sex. It being good, but being within what God had established it. So this idea of sex is good. So just you know, I got a couple of points I want to say. You know that the apex of God's creation, the highest point of God's creation is man and women. Listen to this. There's nothing more amazing. There's nothing more astonishing. There's nothing more compelling. It goes on to say that what happens when sex is your God, you end up desiring disgusting things. There is this sense of sexual immorality, which, by the way, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, to flee from sexual immorality. Why? Because every other sin we commit, we commit outside the body. Sexual immorality is committed with the body. Therefore, going back to what I said about it being a pagan practice in which you're offering your body as a living sacrifice, not unto God, but to a false God. So you're the sacrifice. You're the priest. You're the priestess. That bed you lay in is your altar. And it's not for the glory of God. It's for the glory of a false God, an idol that you've established, something that you have bared the fruit of but never addressed the root of. It goes on in these notes that I have here. There's no end to our depravity. No end whatsoever. Fornication, adultery, pornography, this, this is what we've become. We've gotten to a point where our affections are more for the created than to the creator. And you cannot simultaneously worship the creator while worshiping the created. You can't serve two masters. But here's what happens when you have a culture where sex is God. And I'm going to throw out some numbers to you, and they may be astonishing, and they're probably three years old. And they've only gotten worse, if you think about three years ago. The annual pornography revenue worldwide is $90 billion. Wow. With the United States leading the way with $13 billion. In the US alone, that's what it brings in. The age of exposure to pornography is 11 to 17. So as early as 11 years old, boys and girls are already, because of their phones and because of their pads, these things that you give them to entertain them so that you don't have to talk to them. So what happens is that by 14 years old, after being exposed to this, our children are already sexually active. It says one out of four women in the United States will have an abortion by the age of 45. And it's normally because they're not in a marital relationship. The number one day of the week when porn is being watched, you know what day it is? Sunday. Sunday. Because on Sunday, it's not Jesus who's primarily worshipped as God. It's sex that is worshipped as God. This is when sex becomes gross. And sometimes, a lot of times in our relationships, we bring that into it because also something has happened to us. 
some of us have been and have experienced abuse in our lives, so gross indicates that, man, I, I don't really want to do that because it's happened in a bad way for me. And sometimes because of that, there's no healing that happens. You bring that into a relationship. You bring that into your marriage. And what happens is, um, in consideration that the consummation of a marriage is done through um, sex, that it affects someone emotionally when um, I have a headache tonight. <laughs> right? I have a headache every night. <laughs> right? And rather than being upset about it, begin to have conversations. I was listening to the pastor who actually put this together, um, Mark Driscoll. And he states that he was married for 10 years and didn't know that his wife was a victim of abuse until certain behaviors started to manifest themselves in their relationship. Like she kept it, but she was acting in a particular way as if sex was gross. And he came into the relationship with this, you know, having been exposed, not growing up in church. Uh, she grew up in church, and because she was abused, it, it made it seem to her like this is gross. I'm unworthy. I, I'm, I'm a horrible person. So because of that, sex wasn't something that was enjoyable. It was something, it wasn't something that was good. It was something that was bad. It was nasty. It was vile. And he didn't know this until he finally was able to sit down and have this conversation. And she broke down and opened up and had, for, for 10 years, she kept this. So sex was gross. Because you bring this stuff into it. You experience this stuff. And what I'm saying is when you're exposed to uh, images on a regular basis, it affects you. It affects you. Amen. It's kind of quiet in here. I, I, I hope that we're, we're getting something out of this. Amen? It says God put sex in the Bible in the whole, in fact, he even put a whole book in it. It's called the Song of Solomon. Right? And, and, and when you read it, you know, you, you have to understand, again, before sin, Genesis, sex is good. God put a whole book in there to kind of reveal it to us as well. So I want to encourage you that there are some things that happen in our lives that trap us in a place, but there is a key that can unlock that door to free you. Amen. And the one that holds that key is Jesus Christ. Amen. His mercy, his love, his compassion, his embrace can set you free so that you don't have to be defined by what has happened. You can be defined by what has been done for you. Amen? Amen? Amen. God is good. Amen, amen, amen. Quickly, let's get through this. I got to get out of your way. Sex now as gift. Gift. This is the good part. Woo! This is the good part. Okay, we've heard about it being a God. And if you're uh, involved in a relationship outside of marriage and with sex, you're leading with sex, just know that God loves you, God cares about you, God wants to embrace you. And you know, you have to understand, no matter what, God loves you. But he wants, to he wants you to understand that it is a gift that he gives us for the glory of God, not for false gods. Amen? So sex is God. Sex isn't gross. Now, when we started this conversation, I mentioned sex, and I thought, of, I, I, you know, I thought about polling the audience. We don't have to do it right now because we're in the right. But, but what is your perspective, right? Is it sex is gross? Don't raise your hands. This is between you and God. 
or sex as God. Because I got to tell you, right? Like, like if you poll me, I, I fall on one side or the other. And I think if you pull yourself, you'll realize that the communion table is going to be an opportunity for you to repent, for you to turn around from what it is that you've been practicing, understanding. Like, listen, when, when you're responsible for what you hear, right, like God reveals, we stand up here as men of God, women of God, we try to bring something to you and say, okay, this is what God says. And by the way, th this affects us too. Because 50% of pastors that were interviewed by the Gabbana group say, that the biggest problem in their church is sex. Who's having it? Who's not having it? How can you counsel them on it? How can you address them? Some have been affected by it. Some are still being affected by it. How do you help them to get through these moments? This is the conversation the church has to have. These are conversations your small groups have to have. These are conversations that you have to be able to connect with someone and get the help that you need so you can come out of that. Listen, the key to open that door in which you might be trapped in because of your view and perspective, the key is held by Jesus. And he is willing to be able to open it and allow you to be free from that. Amen? Amen. So because we have two perspectives, everyone here has one. And based on this, listen to this. Again, by age eight, 2.11, a lot of kids are seeing porn on the internet. By age 11, most kids have seen porn on the internet, but the number one consumer of porn, check this out, 12 to 17 years old. You know why? Because of technology. The technology age, because it's accessible now on your phone. Conveniently watch it in the subway, in the stall, in your bathroom, even in a classroom. So, Having said that, as parents, we need to be aware that we need to start having that talk. And if you're waiting for them to be 18 to have that talk, you're 10 years behind already. Someone's going to teach them. Someone's going to expose them to something. But if we don't get our information from the word of God, they'll get it from somewhere else. And it won't lead to life. It will lead to death. Spiritual death. So the Bible gives us six ways in which sex is a gift. You ready? Six ways. Okay? Focus here. Don't worry about the screen. I'm just saying, you just write them down. Number one, it's, it's for pleasure. Woo-wee! Thank you, Jesus. It's for pleasure. Sex, real marriage, it's for pleasure. God has given it to us as a gift for pleasure. It is a gift from God. Psalm 1611 says, pleasures are in your right hand, God, forevermore. Pleasure is not a bad thing. It is a gift from God. This gift from God is to be contained and restrained by marriage. 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 So don't settle for the lesser pleasure. Don't be so shallow. Understanding what we just said about sex being a God. You're an idolater when you expose yourself to sex outside of marriage. It is sexual immorality. It is something you do with your body, so therefore you're offering your body as a living sacrifice, but not for the glory of God. Because for the glory of God is where you abstain, where you maintain your purity, when you walk circumspectly to obedience to the word of God, and you say, God, I want to honor you with all that I do. Amen? So number two is, it can be for procreation. Notice I said, it can be for procreation. 
It's not necessarily the only reason for both. That's a myth, right? That the only reason we have sex is to have babies. It's not. And there are some societies that still practice that and shame women specifically. I don't know if anyone has heard, but female mutilation still happens in third world countries. It is a horrible practice because they don't want it to be pleasurable. They just want it to be for procreation. Why? Because it goes back to this ancient time, back in Genesis, in which some societies still blame women for the fall. It's pleasurable. It's not only for procreation. But just know that moments of intimacy, God allows life to be conceived. Amen? Number three, it's knowledge. Genesis 4.1 says that Adam lay with his wife, Eve, and he knew her. There is this knowledge that happens. There is an intimacy. There is a trust that's built between husband and wife that is sacred. Sacred. That's why adultery is a big deal. The number one reason for divorce these days is adultery. Because there's a trust that's built between two people. Number four, it's for protection. Protection. It talks about not depriving one another. Your body doesn't belong to you, it belongs to your husband. Your body doesn't belong to you, it belongs to your wife. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other lest tempted by Satan. It's for protection. You have a wife and you have your husband. And let me just say that God doesn't give you a standard of beauty. He gives you a spouse. You're going to get that later. But I'm going to explain it again. If it's for protection and God gives you a standard of beauty, when you look at your wife, that's your flavor right there. Your wife. That's it. Punto. Period. Ba-bam. But we laugh. You know why we laugh? Because you've been exposed to beauty that the world shows you. The images you've seen. I mean, Brad Pitt, when he was young, good-looking guy. But he's not your husband. Not going to be your husband. <laughs> your husband is in front of you. Your wife is not some model. But the standard of beauty is not, God doesn't give you, God doesn't say, here, this is what beautiful looks like. No, he gives you a spouse. When Adam was presented with Eve, that was his standard of beauty. When he looked at the lions and the aardvark and the ant, he said, that's beauty. <laughs> that's beauty. That's the standard. God doesn't do that when you are married. Therefore, for your protection, right, for your eyes only, it's your wife. The biggest elbow you ever get is when your eye wanders when you're with your wife. And don't say you got something in your eye. Come on, Bobby, come on. Come on. Oh, I got something in my eye. No. I say that, guys, because we have this perspective. And when we view it this way for our protection, we realize, man, God, you really are 
protecting me, by providing me a spouse who is beautiful and is my partner through life. Amen? Amen. Number five, it's for comfort. There are moments in our marriage where we just, we want to feel connected. We want to feel safe and vulnerable and cared for. I don't have to uh, perform or jump through hoops. I don't have to be perfect. And there's nothing like being comforted in the arms of your wife or your husband in moments where you need to feel safe. In a relationship, if the arms of your spouse are not a safe place, then we have a problem. It's a place of vulnerability. It's a place where you're cared for. And finally, number six is this. It's for oneness. 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 Just one. One. Two people become one. We're talking about sex and marriage. I gave you six reasons why it's a gift. It's for pleasure, procreation, knowledge, protection, comfort, and oneness. In Genesis 2.24... And the husband and wife were what? They were naked without shame. Oneness. Now, what do you think happens when you put two naked bodies together? You think God was surprised? He provided Adam that because Adam felt this void. He felt this absence of connection. He, he wasn't experiencing what he was watching around him take place. So God, it says here, they were naked and there was no shame. He placed them before what? Before sin. This is sex before sin because we know what happened after sin happened. They saw their nakedness. Woo! And they hid. Right? Because there was a shame that suddenly came over them that was not originated from God, but originated from sin and the fall and the brokenness and the lie that they accepted. Two people together, naked, will figure it out. There are a few myths that I want to um, do away with really quick and some lies. The first lie about sex is, is no big deal. It is a big deal. It is. A relationship you've ever had has been affected whether you have or have not. I had this young lady uh, the other day that I work with, and she mentioned, oh, you know, you know, he doesn't want to get married yet. And I'm like, why get married? <laughs> you're already acting like you're married. Now, at my work, I'm a pastor. So when people come to me, they open up to me, they share certain things, and I'm like, hey, man, this is a situation. Begin to put some boundaries and see if he really loves you. So, sex is no big deal. It sure is. Number two, you can be a technical virgin. I'm glad you asked, what does that mean? Because I have no idea what it means. <laughs> I don't. Okay? The next one is sex equals love. It's another lie, right? We all agree? Okay. Then it says, having sex is just like any other sin. We just learned that sexual immorality we must flee from because what happens is that um, 
Any, anything outside the body, right, that we do with sin, but when you do with your body, you're really engaging in this pagan activity, especially outside of marriage, right? So we clear that up that it's not like every other sin. In fact, it says flee sexual immorality, right? Because your body is supposed to be this living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord. Amen? Amen. Okay. And then the last one is everybody's doing it. I don't see nobody doing it here. So you're talking about everybody is doing it every single part of the day. No. Like at the end of the day, just because everybody is doing it doesn't mean it's cool. In fact, the Bible says that there's a way unto man that seems right, but leads to death. Death. A disconnection from God. Listen to me. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. And I know you're feeling right now, oh, my God, I can't believe he's talking about this. There's no other place to talk about it except here. We have to have these conversations here. Because if we don't have them here, what's going to happen, you're getting your information from somewhere else. You're going to bring that into your marriage, and it's going to cost you dearly. Okay? couple of myths, and then we're out of here, okay? These are the five myths about marriage. One is, marriage will rid you of your sin. <laughs> really? Boy, how's that worked out? Right? Next one is marriage will meet your expectations. Marriage is not meant to make you happy. It is meant to make you holy. Holy. God is going to use you, that marriage of two sinners that say I do with two different perspectives to begin to chip away to bring you to this oneness. Oneness doesn't happen the minute you say I do. People say, oh, now we're one. No, you're not. Oneness is something you work out day in, day out as you allow God to lead. We live in a state of perpetual repentance every single day. It's not I'm sorry. It's forgive me identifying why I behave that way and begin to nip that in the bud. The reason I punched a hole in the wall is because I have an anger issue. But it's not just anger because anger is the fruit. The root of it is I want power and control. If you don't listen to me, I'm punching the wall. I'm getting your attention one way or another. I had a conversation with a bunch of men. You, you know, you use your masculinity to coward your women. And I say you're a coward when you do that. That's what I say. Because you're stronger. I hope so. <laughs> I hope you're stronger. <laughs> hope you're stronger. <laughs> Myth number three. Being in relationship with someone you love is easy. That's a myth. Remember, a myth is a false belief that you hold dear to. Number four. Forgiveness is merely a horizontal transaction. No, it's not. We've learned that it's here. It's vertical. You get this right. Get it right with God, and things will work out. And then number five is intimacy propels a good relationship. It's not true. How'd that work out for you? If you start out a relationship with sex, how did that work out with you? Are you still with that person? No. No, we're not. Because once that is done, and there's no commitment to see it through, then it's easy for people to walk away from these things. Amen? God is awesome. God is awesome. I'm going to close with this. I hope this has been helpful. I really do. Dr. Stephen Attenberg talks about the oneness 
and the pleasure and the comfort. And he says this, and, and this is it's going to be a kicker for us because we, we have to understand what happens here. He says, sexual pleasure between a husband and his wife is one of the most intense human experiences. Physically speaking, when a man or woman are together, he says that there is a chemical that is released into the brain called opiate, which means opium-like. Everybody got that? Perfect. Great environment. Addiction. Recovery house of worship. We got that. He goes on to say, apart from a heroin-induced experience, nothing is more physically pleasurable than sex. No. It's not a myth. It's why it drives us. We are passionate people. We are people who are passionate about things. So imagine what it does to you. And this is why the Bible says, when Paul says, listen, if you can't control yourself, I would prefer that you be like me, wholly committed unto the Lord, understanding that my affection, my uh, uh, acceptance, my, my love, my, all that stuff comes from God. But if you can't be like me, get married. Now, hold on a minute, because some of us say, man, if I'm going to, I might as well get married. You're going into marriage for the wrong reasons. In your singleness, if you don't exhibit any control, you won't exhibit it when you're married. And when you bring these images into your home, you're going to expect your partner to perform like those images. And then you're going to be disappointed. And because your standard of beauty is not the spouse you have, you will cheat. So is sex gross? Is sex God? Or is sex a gift from God for the glory of God so that marriages can be put on display? Like that garden that we see that is beautiful. And we want that garden. We want that flowers in front of our home, but don't realize the work that's required to make that a reality. I beg you to surrender your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord. How do you view, how do you view sex? What's your perspective? Well, I pray that after today, you would understand that sex is a gift from your heavenly father because he knows what you need. And when we go after what we want with an image in our minds or this romantic thing that we watch on L&M, thinking that this is it. Women know what L&M is. Some of the guys are like, what is that? It's, not, it's the equivalent of ESPN, that's all. But think about that. Sex is a gift. It is a gift. It is a gift. It is a gift. It is for the glory of God. Amen? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Glory be to God. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord.
Pastor Edwin's going to lead us through the communion. And I want us, in light of this series, I want us to realize that when something is exposed in our lives, it's not meant to shame us. It's meant to convict us. And when one is convicted in Christ, the Bible reminds us that it's an opportunity for us to repent, an opportunity to realize that we've been traveling the wrong way, and God, through his Holy Spirit, through his word, taps us on the shoulder and says, hey, you're heading in a direction, and you're walking on a path that I have not set for you. So as we think about this talk and think about what I believe the Holy Spirit is doing in this room right now, I believe he's shining a light into your heart, into your thoughts. And moments like this where we get a chance to partake of the communion table, and we take that bread, and we take that drink, that we would realize Jesus paid a price to redeem us. Not so that we can live as we want to, but that we can live as he has commanded us to. What we've heard today is just God saying, this is the gift I have for you. So Father, right now in the name of Jesus Christ, I thank you for allowing us, Lord, to be still, allowing us to hear what you have to say today, Lord. And I realize, Lord, that it's going to challenge every fiber of our being, especially if our perspective is not sex as a gift. But I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, through the mercy, forgiveness, and love that's been demonstrated on the cross for each and every one of us, that we would run toward you and honor you by offering our bodies as a living sacrifice unto you, holy and acceptable. Lord, may that be the cry of our hearts.